please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read short text here. Beginning in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is the infallible, inerrant word of the holy God may imprint its eternal truths upon our hearts. The children may be dismissed and you may be seated. I was excited that the guys were able to get this big screen up by today because I got graphs. I got charts. And it's going to be nice to be able to see them without having big lines through the middle of the words constantly. Um, and I think you'll actually be able to read the graphs and charts even sitting in the back, and that's going to be pretty neat. So thank you for all those that worked to get this up and get us to this point. The unity of the faith. The text today, the sermon, is going to be a little different than usual. We just finished our Genesis, 50, Genesis chapter 50, the 50 chapters in that first book of the Bible. I really enjoyed that series. And then, like all good things, it comes to an end. You move on to the next thing. And so we're moving on to Ephesians, and we're moving on to Proverbs. But we often do this, at least for as long as I have pastored here. I've mostly, most years done this. We take a break between series at the beginning of a year, and talk about the issue of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is simply the doctrine of the church, how the church should operate, how the church should function. And each year that we do this, it's something a little bit different, different aspect, different angle, different way to look at it. The specific thing we're looking at in these next four weeks is the unity of the faith. Sermon the next three weeks is going to be very clearly expositional, walking through some texts of Scripture. This sermon today is not like that. We'll be looking at a lot of Scripture, um, but it will be weaving together a bigger picture from a lot of Scripture to introduce the sermon series. So if you're new here, I just want to assure you, our practice and our habit is to systematically go through books of the Bible, and this is a little bit of a, a, um, 
an anomaly because of the, the sermon series beginning. But that phrase that we read in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul was saying we need to search for or pursue the reason why he gave gifted positions of leadership in the church, beginning with apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and then pastors who teach or pastor teachers. The reason for those is, as he says, as the Holy Spirit through Paul says, is for the equipping of the saints to enable the saints, the church, and throughout the New Testament scriptures, the saints is short for the church. I don't know how that's short. It's the same number of letters approximately. But it's the idea the saints equals the church. And he gave leadership to the church so that the church would be equipped. Equipped for what? Equipped to do the work of the ministry. And we talk about this often at Grace Baptist Church, that we believe in every member ministry, that you are the ministers of the gospel. You are the ministers of the Word of God. You are ministers in your family. You are ministers in your home. You're ministers in your neighborhood and in your work and in your school. You are the ministers. And so we gather on Sundays to be equipped, to be to scatter during the week to do the work of ministry, to serve the great commission out for the world, to serve Christ to the world and to our families. What happens when the church, the saints, are being effectively equipped? So in other words, the pastors are doing their job and the saints are doing their job. What happens? Well, he says that this is for or unto the building up, the edifying of the body of Christ. We are built up when we are equipped and serving. What is the aim of the building up of the body of Christ? This is speaking, by the way, Paul is speaking spiritually and I think numerically as well, meaning the church grows in all of its ways. It's growing. It's, it's, it's administering the gospel um, message. It's advancing. It's edifying. It's being built up. And he says the aim of this is till we all come, all the saints, the church comes to the, and this is that phrase, unity of the faith. Nearly all the time when faith, you find faith in the New Testament is articular or it has the in front of it, it's not referring to the individual's subjective expression of faith or another way to put that, what I might believe personally, but it's talking about um, a doctrine, a set of beliefs a standard in which we agree to, and agree to and adhere to. The faith. We use that all the time in English, the Christian faith. We even use it the other way of other religions, the Muslim faith or the Mormon faith. People use that, the faith, that way. It comes from the Scripture of using it this way. This is what Paul is talking about. He's saying the aim is that we as the church would have a unity in our doctrinal standard, that we would agree, we would believe the things that we must believe that are the faith. What does that look like when the church is unified in the faith? What does it look like for a, a healthy church to be growing in the faith and to be coming tighter and tighter and tighter in what they believe in practice? This is what it looks like. And the knowledge, the unity of the faith, and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith is encapsulated in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature, perfect, complete, to a thoroughly equipped, to a full man, a, uh, the, uh, one that looks like the second Adam or one that looks like Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to the perfect man, to the man like Christ. We become Christ-like. So, 
summarize what he's saying here. He gives gifted leadership to the church. They're supposed to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. As the church is being equipped and doing the work of the ministry, the church is being built up, edified. The aim of that edification is to be Christ-likeness. We need the unity of faith to be Christ-like. The danger, which he's going to say in one in Ephesians and talk about, is that when this isn't happening, when the pastors aren't equipping and the people aren't being equipped, um, we are easily carried about with every wind of doctrine. And a new teacher and a new idea comes along, and it sounds pretty enticing and interesting for the moment. And it's trickery and craftiness. But instead, we need the truth to be spoken in love continually, both by those outside and those inside, right? Truth in love to be constantly spoken so that we could grow up in every joint in the body, achieving this unity of faith, working together, pulling together, not in order to accomplish some earthly gains, but the spiritual maturity, the steadfastness in Christ-likeness, the edifying of itself in love. He ends this section. Now, I just started preaching Ephesians chapter 4, and I have a hard time not getting carried away, but we're going to actually be going through Ephesians this next year. So we'll come to this text again. This is setting up what we're talking about and why this sermon series regarding the unity of the faith. See, in a church's pursuit of the unity of the faith, there are two dangerous perils to avoid. I call those doctrinal minimalism and doctrinal maximalism, really creative titles I have there. What do we mean by that? The doctrinal minimalism, that's the trajectory of broader evangelicalism and hyper-ecumenicism. That's the idea that basically, it doesn't really matter what you believe about God, about the Scripture, about truth. What really matters is that we all just get along. Because love triumphs over everything. That's the way the phrase might be used. And there is great fear when there's doctrinal minimalism of disagreement. Whenever somebody says, I don't agree with you, they go, divisiveness, division, what are you doing? We're supposed to be in unity in the faith. And so often doctrine is sacrificed for supposed unity. But what that actually does, and when I say doctrinal minimalism, I say just say you believe in Jesus or something like that, minimal, minimal to agree to. That way everyone can agree. The problem with that is healthy doctrine becomes impotent. What is the power of sound, true doctrine or teaching if basically everyone can believe or not believe and it just really doesn't matter what you truly believe? There's, there's no power in that. There's no, nothing about that faith that matters. And Christian worship, that's meaningless. Who and what are we worshiping anyways? The, uh, that's one peril. The other side of the peril, other peril is doctrinal maximalism, and that's a narrow fundamentalism, a hyper-separatism, as opposed to where nothing really matters. We just all agree this is everything matters to the same level. And unity is often sacrificed for supposed doctrine. And the great fear on this side is we don't want to be compromisers, and so compromise is always held out there as the, as the threat in any sort of Unity or agreeing to disagree on things becomes a mark of one's weakness and compromise, and you're just not separated enough. And in this sort of world with doctrinal maximalism, Christian unity becomes impossible. I can't even be unified with myself in some things. 
And then Christian worship becomes hypocritical. Because what happens, it's like the Pharisees in the New Testament where you start making the commandments of men to be the commandments of God and becomes a hypocritical worship. It becomes about the man or the, the group or the organization or the church and what we believe in. Our separatism becomes our, our worship. That's this side. Of course, all of us here perfectly land in the middle, right? Never have any problems with that. But that is the sweet spot, if you will, the unity of the faith, that phrase, the unity of the faith, where we're holding unity and the faith, pursuing unity and pursuing the faith with clarity and understanding. So the next several sermons, I have three points on this because the last sermon is going to take two weeks to do. So there's four weeks. This week, we're going to just look at what is the faith? What do we mean by that? What does that look like? Next week, how do, we pursue, how do we pursue unity? How do we pursue oneness in the faith, agreement? Uh, uh, and then the last one, what about when we disagree? What about disputable matters? How are we supposed to handle that as a church body? There's a couple of things we have to talk about before we get into a text of Scripture, and we're going to look at Scripture today. Don't worry. A lot of Scripture today. But I want to make a couple of statements then hopefully back them up with Scripture. First of all, the entirety of divine revelation matters significantly. It is wrong for us to say that in this book there are non-essentials. If God said it, it's essential, right? We've got to have that as a clear, clear understanding. Paul the Apostle says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine. Even the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and some of these difficult ones, even Judges, right? God-breathed, profitable for doctrine. He goes on to say, Paul does, so that it's everything that we need so that we can become complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. However, this is a lot of divine truth to know and to obey, and it's a lifetime pursuit, and no one has been able to completely plumb the depths of God's inerrant revelation. Books and books and books are written because of that very task of saying, but what does it mean and how do I apply it? And we just keep reading and studying and it's a living book and the more we read, the more we get and we realize, I didn't know this and this is new and wow, that's fascinating. And so when we say it's all important, it's all significant, what are we to do with how much it is? We are called in this book itself, in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study and rightly divide the word of truth, to make sense of it and how it all works together in this cohesive unit. And we are called as the church, the pillar and ground or support and holding out of the truth. So we're supposed to know it, we're supposed to study it, we're supposed to handle it rightly, and we're supposed to protect it and hold it out. Now, if you hear all that, and you hear that this is divine revelation, and you suddenly feel this seems like a very scary, daunting task, then you're hearing it correctly. This is daunting. This is a big deal. 
especially when we come to like Jude in Jude 3, where he says, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Not only to hold it out, we're to earnestly contend for it. To say, no, you can't have it. I will not let you change that. I will not let you alter that truth, that doctrine that's clearly revealed here to contend for it. So, thoroughly knowing, believing, obeying, supporting, defending God's doctrinal standard or the faith seems to be quite an important yet daunting responsibility to pursue, pursue, pursue unity and achieve unity in that faith. Especially when the text we read today calls us to pursue that unity of the faith. How do we get this? How do we have unity in such a big document? How do we have unity in the faith when it's so daunting? And let's be honest, we all have all sorts of perspectives and ways and baggage and stuff as we come and approach this. All different levels of our development and our growth. Might I suggest something that was not original with me, but it's a phrase called doctrinal triage. Now, in medical triage, that is prioritizing injured patients, usually during a mass casualty event. And so medical personnel will evaluate the needs of patients and then perhaps assign them color-coded tags with immediate treatment needed, urgent treatment, and delayed treatment. And you get the idea, right? You, head injury, that's an immediate treatment. We need to deal with this one right away. Uh, urgent, you know, broken leg, fractured, looks really bad. Perhaps the bleeding has stopped, but... This needs to be dealt with pretty urgently. And um, in a mass casual event, my problem, I got a little cut on my finger. Well, we would move that one into the, you know, the delayed treatment. And we won't talk about the other category because that one doesn't have an effect on doctrinal triage. And that's, this one's not going to make it, so we don't even treat it all. Now, I want to make it clear again, there are no non-essential things in Scripture, just like there are no non-essential patients in medical triage. The cut finger matters. Every word of God in the Bible matters. And yet, we recognize that the Scripture consistently puts forward or pushes itself forward as having main things, main lines, priorities, the main and plain things. Say, so where does it do that? Well, Jesus does that. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus addresses the Pharisees, and he says to them that they're erring because they are letting go of the weightier matters of the law. Now, what he's talking about, he's talking about their tithing and doing mercy and love and justice, and they're really adamant on the tithing but they're leaving off the mercy and judgments, justice. And he doesn't say, that's odd, it's not essential. He says, you ought to do that. But don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. Now, Jesus himself gave the law, right? It's his word. So, one God, one spirit, one Christ, one divine law, and yet Jesus suggests that in that one divine law, there are the main and plain things. There are things that are weightier matters, things that we need to put in priority. Doctrinal triage. That's what Jesus is talking about there. 
Paul the Apostle does the same thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, and this word is one word in the Greek, first of all, or that in the Greek means of first importance, or of first priority, first in order, or first order, I delivered to you that which also I received, in first order is the implication there, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen. Paul the Apostle, like Jesus, says, listen, the Scriptures are important, all of them. And yet when I came to teach you I delivered to you what I received, that which was of first importance. And then he describes the historical gospel as that which is of first importance. Doctrinal triage. Paul doesn't say that the rest of Isaiah doesn't matter, just Isaiah 53 or something like that. Only the parts that talk about Jesus matter. What he is saying is we have to prioritize the doctrine, the faith, in an orderly way so that we know which ones to put our shoulder strength to and which ones to put a little less strength to and so on and so on and so on. Triage. Albert Moeller, who I think is the first to use the term theological triage, also describes the faith as a center and bounded set. And I thought this was helpful as well. It's if we're looking at a target and the bullseye, which is the priority of that which is the first importance, the gospel. The main thing, all repeated through Scripture. This is the main thing in the revealed Word of God. And then as you work further out, the further a doctrine or a teaching or Scripture gets from the connection or attending to the gospel, it orders its importance accordingly. Might I say that if we aim for the center, we'll generally get the attendant doctrine right as well which is why we at Grace seek to have a very gospel-centric way of teaching and living and doing ministry, believing that by hitting the first important doctrines, these first-order doctrines, and focusing on them, the others fall into place much smoother than trying to randomly hit different things on the target. Now, neither Jesus nor Paul invents these things, or Albert Moeller, or me myself, invents these things out of thin air. Anyone who pays careful attention to the Scripture will notice that while everything is divine truth, some truths seem to be consistently repeated, restated, found in nearly every book or genre of the Scripture. Some truths clearly are foundational to other truths. The nature of God, for example. Plainly foundational to everything else in the Scripture. First importance. We noticed that, didn't we not, in our study through Genesis? Seemed like constantly who God is and the promise of the Christ seems to always be the foundational element. There, the doctrines of first importance. It's very important that doctrinal triage is essentially considering the Scripture as a whole. It's looking at the whole thing. 
looking at the analogy of the faith, the whole of it, believing it's one inspired book with, by one spirit through many people, and it all works toward a whole point. It all fits together. And that's what makes the idea of doctrinal triage attainable, is we believe it's one holistic word of God. It's not a bunch of randomly collected sayings from shepherds in the desert that contradicts or doesn't contradict. It's, it's, it's God's word. So we must consider the Scripture as a whole, the analogy of the faith, and then as we do that, we are pursuing a unity of the faith. As many have noted in the past, a short saying that when we come to the Scripture, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, and to keep that before us. So, some of you have seen this chart. None of you have seen this chart this way, because I've reworked it. And, uh, but some of you have seen charts similar to this, the chart that we give to our members in membership class and, and these sort of things. I'm just going to talk through it a little bit, then we're going to look at a biblical example of doctrinal triage through the Scripture. So one of the other things I tried to do is I found out what the actual colors of triage were in medical world, and I made that match. <laughs> Column one and two, this reddish-pinkish sort of column, what do we mean by those? Well, through careful study of the Scripture, robust biblical theology, and consideration of the last 2,000 years of Christian historical theology, we believe this chart, though incomplete and imperfect, it's not God's Word, represents how we at Grace sort through, how the pastors here specifically sort through the categories of doctrinal priority. Column 1A and 1B, this is the gospel and the attendant doctrine. What do we mean by attendant doctrine? It's doctrines that are so closely connected to the truths of the gospel that, though, that if you take one of those doctrines and you rip those attendant doctrines out, you render the gospel meaningless and powerless eventually. So the gospel and attendant doctrine. The gospel, God, His triune nature in existence. Christ, His person, His nature, His atonement for us, salvation, the gospel story, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the fact that we are all sinners in need of the gospel salvation, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that makes us alive. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gospel. This is the heart. This is the center of the bullseye in the chart. If a person gets these parts wrong. A person does not have the true gospel of Christ. If a church gets any of these parts wrong, it is a false church because the gospel is what makes us wise to salvation. The scripture with the gospel at the center. But the attendant doctrine matters too. Things like the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of this word. Why do I call this attendant doctrine? Because though it's not the same thing, believing that the Bible is inspired is not the same thing as believing in Jesus' death on the cross, right? But what happens if you say you don't believe or you undermine the inspiration of the word of God? This isn't God's word. Well, then how can you even believe that gospel about Jesus? 
So not believing in the Bible as the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God attends to the gospel because without it, the gospel becomes a false gospel. People just inject their own ideas into it. The miracles of Jesus, like his virgin birth, that he walked on water. Because if we can't trust the gospels to tell us that those things really happened, then how can we trust them to tell us about the redemption found in Christ? The fact that God is the creator. That we are not basically just evolved bags of water and gas. That we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That greatly affects the whole gospel story because if you don't have that, you don't have the creation, you don't have the fall, you don't have the salvation promised, you don't, ha you, you don't have anything. Now, this is a word we've brought into, tried to bring into Grace's terminology, the parousia. That simply means the return of Christ, that he's coming back for us. Paul's in the bodily resurrection. Paul, the apostle, says that if we don't believe in the bodily resurrection, if we don't believe in this return of Christ and him coming back for us, then we Christians, we are wasting our time and we have all men most worthy to be pitied for our foolishness. That's important. It if Christ really isn't coming back, then how can we even be certain he came the first time? Eternal life, eternal death, and judgment. Those things are attend, they attend to the gospel. And so as you see in our category, we kind of put one big black box around them. Though Christians will battle and struggle even in some of these areas, and I'm not sure I understand that all the way, or I don't really understand the Trinity. We didn't talk about understanding. Talk about whether we're going to believe these truths. It doesn't mean full comprehension and all the inner workings of the Trinity to believe these things. It means, yes, God's word tells me that he is one God in nature and three persons, and so I believe that. And this is the faith that defines Christian brotherhood. The people that hold these things, even if we have many other things we might disagree on, I say to you, welcome, brother, sister. We're going to battle about some other things, but in this one, we're, we're, we're together. We're in it. That's the universal church, the brotherhood of the saints. The next column, the third column, the yellow one, this one's very important. This doesn't define brotherhood, but it gives the boundaries of fellowship, of partnership. And most of these have to do with how the church functions, her philosophy. It's actually, this third column is where uh, most uh, denominations, Christian denominations, have arisen. This is where they generally get their major disagreements in the third column, not in the first two. If, you have, if there's disagreements in the first two, it's not a, a Christian, Christian denomination. <laughs> it's just another religion, a false religion or a different religion. But the Christian denominations, you, you know what I mean by that. Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptist, Lutheran, and so on and so on. This is where they generally get their distinction, is in this third column. Now, of course, that's not to say that every denomination that historically held to the first and second columns there still does. I'm just pointing out that this is the differences. 
complementarianism, what you do with Paul's passages when he talks about how the church should be ordered and structured with leadership, the role of men and women in the family and in the life of the church. Whether you're doxological, whether the purpose is the uh, advancement of man or the glory of God, whether you preach the Scriptures expositionally or just kind of randomly throw darts at the text and decide what you're going to come up with. Your views on baptism are in this category, whether you sprinkle or pour or, or, or dunk, and it's in here. Communion and how that's done. Like I said, denominations. Your worship philosophy, why you do what you do, and I've often said this, church, that why we do what we do is foundational to what we do. And why we do what we believe, what we should do, why we practice what we practice, that should take priority in asking questions. I love it when new members and people that are interested, they ask me why, rather than just what. Because we need to get to the why, why we believe these things. Another word maybe not familiar with many, your hermeneutic, or how you approach your interpretation of the Scripture. How you're going to interpret things like Genesis and Exodus and Joseph and the idea of covenants and what that means, your hermeneutic, how you approach those things. Cessationism, that's to do with the ongoing of the uh, miraculous uh, spiritual gifted people. That's in this category. And I, I threw in a word just because I was trying to find a way, conservative. I know in our culture today that can, people generally think of a politics here. I don't mean that politically. I mean wanting to conserve the truths of the Christian church. Like we, rather than being quick to change, conserving things. These, this box with the first two, this helps us think through the bounds, not of Christianity, but bounds of Christian fellowship and partnership. And this makes up the, the red and yellow boxes. This makes up the local and church fellowship. Give you just a, a brief illustration for this. I personally... I'm a Baptist historically, and I have been most of my life, well, all of my life that I've known about it, but I've come to that convictionally. I wasn't grown up as a Baptist. I came to it convictionally. I have dear brothers who are Presbyterian, and we disagree on a few things in this yellow category, and we don't disagree with anything on the red category. And yet, he's not comfortable being a member of this church, and I'm not comfortable being a member of his church. Not because we think the others are, each other are heretics. I don't think my friend thinks I'm a heretic. Uh, or unorthodox, or somehow going to hell. But we believe that we have seen these truths about baptism and, and, the, and the doxology and the worship philosophy and the hermeneutic. We believe we've seen each of us, seen these things clearly spelled out in Scripture. <coughs> and it would harm us to believe we're living in disobedience in these matters. And so I don't want my Presbyterian brother to worship and feel every time he worships that he is disobeying God because of the disagreement on the issue of baptism. I mean, it would be hard because he's like, but they're not, they're not baptizing my children. And, and that hurts them. And I don't want to be in a situation where every time I see the baptism, I'm like, that's not it. It's wrong, and you're, you're taking the meaning of the baptism incorrectly. We both think the other one is wrong and disobedient to the Scripture. Now, that's a tough one for people to swallow, but it's true. That's why denominations sprung up. We want to allow a place for obedience to the Scriptures, even when we agree on the gospel and the attendant doctrine. So, 
I've said this to some of you, I don't believe that denominations are the bad thing. I think they're actually a good thing. They allow us to worship and to serve according to our conscientious interpretations of the Scripture in obedience, and we can do so with joy. And I can say, carry on, brother, over there. I just don't agree with you. And he said, carry on over there. We'll pray for each other's ministries, but worship and, and practice and ministry, we're going to have these particular unique boundaries. A church articles of faith, a confession, ought to include, and most do include, these red and yellow columns. Every historical Christian confession, London Baptist Confession, New Hampshire Confession, the Westminster Confession, these Protestant confessions, they all contain the elements of the red and yellow in them, and they ought to. It's the bounds of our fellowship, not necessarily the bounds of faith, of belief. And that's okay. Like that's, it's good to have bounds so we can know that we're pursuing unity of the faith. But this fourth column, the green one, these two are biblical matters, interpretive elements, perspectives of individual Christians where they can be and perhaps are even disagreement over. Yet, Disagreement over these matters, I suggest, should not disrupt true Christian and church fellowship and partnership. These might be conscience matters, what kind of clothes we should wear, what kind of food or drink we should do as Christians, our family practices, what kind, how we school our children, which Bible translations we use, obscure interpretations, what you believe the passage about baptism for the dead means and what I believe it means in 1 Corinthians 15 mentioned once and we know it doesn't mean what the LDS church says it does but it means one something else and we're going to debate over that issue of what it means these also include worship matters um, in a church for example whether you have classes for kids or you don't have classes for kids whether you have a nursery or you don't have a nursery um, whether your sermons are two hours long or one hour long you can disagree on that but that's not a biblical matter to divide over. The traditions of a church. Well, we, like, we sing three songs, or we sing four songs. Musical styles. And I also suggest that the details regarding the end times matters. The eschatology also are in here. The details. When is Christ returning? The timing of those sort of things. What's it going to look like? Seven years? Three and a half years? Before? After? Mid? Millennial kingdom? Is that spiritually fulfilled? Physically fulfilled? Is it fulfilled here on earth? Is it fulfilled in heaven? And all these sort of eschatology, how the parousia works in its details, those also are these matters where there's disagreement. And I like, and rather than putting at the heading on this column the word that I was tempted to put, and that's disagreements, I put the head on discussions. Because in a church, we should have these discussions. You should feel comfortable sitting down with me and saying, I think that this particular interpretation of that text, that you're way off. And I should be able to sit and say, okay, let's go at it. You bring your view, I'll bring my view, let's work this. And then the whole point of the green matter is like, okay, see you next Sunday. That it's not going to divide us. But we can still discuss it. Sometimes people think when you get to these issues of conscience matters or worship matters or end times matters that, that what we're saying by that is, so don't talk about it. We don't want any disunity. But disunity comes 
not in what people talk about, but in how they discuss it and how they treat one another. That's why this last sermon in this series is going to be actually just over this fourth column. What do we do with disputable matters? How do we do that? How do we achieve that? Paul the Apostle gives us a lot of Scripture to tell us about that. So this is my attempt, Pastor Caleb's attempt. We've worked on this together. This is our attempt to lead Grace Baptist Church in doctrinal triage, how we should hold matters and what levels of significance we give them and the priority. And I guess you could see that, that if, this, if you have a sort of triage like this, then you would expect, right, that almost that every sermon, every sermon is going to include as its heart and point the red columns, Right? Some sermons will include the yellow columns when they come up in the text, but they're not going to drive the sermons in the church. They're gonna, when they come up in the text, this is, we're going we're to teach it. And that most sermons, very rarely would you have this in a sermon is what I mean by this, would not contain much in the green column. More, the sermons about those would be telling us how to have these discussions. When they come up in the text, they come up in the text. But they don't drive the church. They don't drive the philosophy. And that's the heart. That's our heart for Grace Baptist Church in our ecclesiology as a church fellowship, a family. Now, this all sounds, sounds well and good to me. Sadly, many churches and people essentially reverse the order of triage. And I'm not trying to bag on any particular church because I don't have anyone in mind. But you've probably been there where you visited a church or you've gone for some time and it seems like there's sermons and teaching and the discussion is constantly in the green matters. Having this conference about this and it's just, and you're like, wow. And you, and you go away and you're like, whew, boy, that's really interesting sometimes and but man, I just am feeling weak and I'm not feeling as if I'm being edified or built up. Perhaps that's because of Ephesians chapter 4. That when we pursue the unity of the faith, that's when there's the building up of the church. When we flip these around, these around not only do these preferences and conscious matters and, and worship styles and end times details, when, uh, these sort of things, not only do they take priority, but what they displace is equally important. There's only so much time in a sermon, only so much time in a week. And we have to make sure that the heartbeat of the instruction and the equipping is in the gospel, attendant doctrine, and fellowship matters. It's moving down that way. There's actually, we talk about a fifth column that nobody sees. Um, and there's a reason why nobody sees it, why it's not up here. And that's because it's the column that says, whatever don't even, don't, you don't even need to have a discussion or disagreement about it. Who cares what color the chairs are? Everything in the green column has some sort of biblical, there's something behind it, right? It matters, your Bible translator, the Bible does talk about clothes, the Bible does talk about food and drink, right? There's something there. The Bible doesn't talk about the church chairs or the temperature of the auditorium or, or whatever, those sorts of things, right? So there's like this fifth column and a lot of our stuff we probably had to just throw into that one. If there's not scriptural verses backing for it anywhere, then maybe believe it out of even the discussion for fellowship. 
I guess that's the black tag in triage. Just let it die. Now, this whole concept, I, I have about 12 minutes. And this is going to be a record for me. Because I, my goal for the next 12 minutes is to give you a biblical example of theological triage. Because I think that's exactly what we have in the book of Romans. So I'm going to teach through the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans in 12 minutes. Okay, that may be a lie. I may go over the 12 minutes. I just want to make that get out there right now with that. What do I mean by doctrinal triage? Paul says at the end in chapter 15, verse 24 in the book of Romans, you're not going to be able to turn to your Bibles, by the way. I got the scriptures up here because I'm going to go so quickly. He says in chapter 15, 24 to the church of Rome, who he's never been to, never visited, knows some people there, but it wasn't a church started by him. And this is what he says. When I journey into Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if at first I may enjoy your company for a while. Two things are happening here when Paul writes this. First off, he's saying, hey, I'm going to come through, but I want to tell you, surprise, surprise, it's at the end of the letter, surprise, surprise, I have an ulterior motive for this letter. Um, I got a missionary journey into Spain planned, and I need money and people to help me. I need you to help me. This is a missionary letter. He's trying to get support. Um, and we're going to go together. It's like, and th then the second thing he's saying here is like, oh, and I want to make sure I can enjoy your company for a while. Now, does he mean he just wants to come and hang out with the church? Actually, what he means is, I want to see if we can actually enjoy fellowship. Are we going to be able to partner together? That's what he's asking. So, chapter 1. For I long to see you, he tells the Roman church, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established or built up, right? That is, that I may be encouraged by the mutual faith, the unity of the faith, the mutual faith, both of you, the church, and me, the apostle. So this, my contention is the book of Romans is Paul outlining the unity of the faith as he saw it. He's doing theological triage. He's going to walk through the first three columns. Not everything is going to be mentioned in there because we wouldn't need the rest of Scripture. But most everything that he, mentioned, that he mentions is going to be something we could find in one of those first three columns. And then what he does in chapter 12, he says, okay, now we should live. We should live according to the faith. And that's going to be unity. And we need unity. And then he's going to spend chapter 12 basically saying, okay, now how do we have Christian unity? Humility, service, love. He's going to do that. And then in chapter 14, he's going to say, but what about these matters that we don't agree on? What about when a brother thinks you can eat meat or not eat meat? What about these holy days? He's like, aha, there is something we can do about that. Green column, this is how we interact with one another on these. So I think what Paul actually does in Romans is theological triage. So we're going to do that. What is the first, what are doctrines of first order? What are the first important things? Well, first thing he starts with is he starts with the most important of all. He says in chapter 1, 15 through 17, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the first arrow he pulls out and shoots toward the Roman church is hitting the center, bullseye, the gospel. First importance, let's get this one settled. Make sure we're on the same page here. Because there is no life apart from becoming righteous 
in the gospel. The righteousness that the gospel promises. There is no life. The just shall live by faith. Why? Well, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. You irreligious people, you need the gospel because you're sinful. You religious people, you need the gospel because you're sinful. In fact, everyone needs the gospel because you're sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there is hope for sinners to become righteous, at least for God to see them as such, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You can see in chapter 3, 23-26, this is the gospel salvation all wrapped up here. We, if we had the time, we could go through and see that everything in the gospel is somehow pointed to in this, these few verses here. He encapsulates it all very well. It's not all he has to say, but he gives a great summation of the gospel right here. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, spiritual regeneration. We're sinners. We need the grace of God. All of that's found in this so that we are justified in his sight. But it does matter the effects of the gospel. What it, what it does, what it means, it is significant. We pause and talk about that. How is it possible for sinners to become righteous, or at least to be declared righteous, justified in the sight of God. He says, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, righteousness, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We're on chapter 4 now of Romans, and he keeps repeating the gospel of first importance. How one is righteous before God. How one is justified. How sinners can become righteous. How God can look on us in our wicked state and say they're good, forgiven, clean, redeemed. They're mine. Grace, faith, and Christ died and he rose again. And that's what Paul emphasizes in chapter 4. And you can have that righteousness too. You can have the same righteousness of Abraham. It's imputed to you. It's given to you by a gift of grace. And that's what he is saying is of first importance. The effects of what the gospel does is fantastic. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's no more war in heaven between us and God. Why? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the parousia, the return, the glory of God. But we're still living here, aren't we? Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
justification, and your justification turns toward your freedom. And that freedom turns toward your sanctification, your growth, endurance, hope, growth. Why? Because God loves you immensely. Don't trying to go quickly here. The next very next verses that I'll have written down are how do you know he loves you? Because he demonstrated his love while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't just happen. Even good men rarely die for another good man. No one, no good man dies for the worst. But Christ does. He loves you. He's sanctifying you. Keep going. So, in the sanctifying process, what do we do? How do we live in this? Should we just keep on sinning? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, by the way, this is when that third column, right? Baptism, baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. What's the meaning of baptism? What's the purpose in it? Well, to show us, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so now, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, Paul's going to talk about this newness of life. What does it mean to walk in newness of life? Chapter 6, he's going to say, well, it looks like putting off and putting on. Chapter 7 is going to be like, and it looked like a lot of failure. A lot of trying and falling and, oops, I shouldn't have done that, and the things I want to do I don't want to do, and feeling wretched all the time, and, uh, and then turning back to Christ, the source of wholeness in our wretchedness. And you come to the end of it in chapter 7, and you're sort of like, man, this is tough. It's tough to be a Christian. It's tr- tough to grow. He says, yes, but keep this in mind. There is, therefore, even when you're ups and downs, even on your worst days and your bad days, and you're walking like Paul in chapter 7, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Later on, he'll say in verse 11, but if the spirit of him raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. What he'll do in most of chapter eight is he'll talk about the parousia the hope that the believer has in Christ in heaven, the glory that is waiting for him, the joy that is there, the, that we are inheritors, we are heirs with him. But what he doesn't do is talk about any of the details of the timing of it. Instead, he gives the main point of the eschatological matters, and that is the hope of glory in Christ. This all seems too good to be true. Grace just seems otherworldly. It doesn't seem natural or real. Justice, work, that seems natural. That seems like something that makes sense to me. And of course it does, because it is natural, and grace is supernatural. But God chooses his people to be heirs, his children to be heirs. How is this so? Isn't that some unrighteousness with God to choose these people? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So if it's God who shows mercy and he's the one that chooses, does that mean we just, it's, it's fatalism? We just sit back and watch? For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a means that God has appointed to bring his chosen people into faith in him, and that is through the proclamation of the word of God. What do we do with all these things? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? The point of the unity of the faith, my brothers and sisters, is not so that we can sit here and say, quote, we got it right. We got true doctrine. And we've really figured the faith out. All those other loser churches out there that don't know what they're talking about. The purpose of the unity of the faith is worship. Doctrine means to lead us to doxology. And so Paul ends the doctrinal portion of Romans with this, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to him to whom be glory forever. Amen. Doctrinal triage is not an intellectual pursuit. It's a, it's a worship pursuit.